Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a message from our sermon series in Isaiah. We'll be in Isaiah 44 and 45. And church, this is the absolute good stuff. I can't wait to get into Isaiah 44 and 45. This is how it is for you because this is how it is for me. Uh, flavor of the day forecast from your favorite frozen custard place. You have it on your phone. Perhaps some of you in your addiction to sugar, you print it out and you magnet it on your refrigerator and you're looking, you're looking because your favorite flavor is coming and you are on that date and you're like, that day, no matter what happens, come what may, I'm going to be there. I'm going to order a double, triple scoop in a waffle cone because that's my favorite flavor. When I decided to preach on Isaiah, I just, I couldn't wait to get to Isaiah 45. It's, it's got to be one of my tip, tip, top, top shelf chapters in all of the Bible. I just love Isaiah 45. It is so good. It is so rich. What Isaiah is talking about here in this section of Isaiah is a, he's, he's making a parallel uh, preaching sermon about Israel needing deliverance from her political captivity, her social captivity under Babylon, and that's how Cyrus is going to deliver her from that. And also, there's a double line there in that Israel needs ultimate deliverance from her captivity to sin and death. And not Cyrus, but rather the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, is going to accomplish that. And we see both of these lines throughout the 40s in Isaiah, this deliverance from political rule and this deliverance in salvation. And one of the things that happens here is Cyrus is named. There's a prophetic revelation about Cyrus that's given here in Isaiah 44 and 45. You see Cyrus's name there in verse 28 of chapter 44. You see Cyrus's name there in chapter 45 of, in verse 1 of chapter 45, and Cyrus is named. Cyrus is a pagan king. Cyrus worships idols. This is the other thing that happens throughout Isaiah in the 40s. Isaiah is talking about how ridiculous it is to worship idols, how stupid it is to worship idols, and how useless it is to worship idols. And then Isaiah says, God's going to take this idol worshiper, and he's going to anoint him and raise him up so that he conquers Babylon and frees my people from their enslavement to Babylon, which is unthinkable. And so here in Isaiah 45, Isaiah emphasizes God's sovereignty. And then he says this famous verse, verse 9 of Isaiah 45, woe unto him who quarrels with his maker. Interesting that in this chapter about God's sovereignty, we have this warning, don't argue against God's sovereignty on those days when God in his sovereignty does something that you wouldn't have expected him to do. Nobody expected this idol-worshiping king to defeat Babylon and free Israel, but that's exactly what happened. You can read about it in the Bible in the book of Ezra. One more thing to say about this text, and uh, this is like a huge thing in studying Isaiah, 
but it's not really a huge thing anymore. That is that all the scholars who study Isaiah, this text more than any other makes them want to say that Isaiah didn't write all of Isaiah. Because to name Cyrus 150 years before he was on the scene would mean that Isaiah would have to be making some sort of supernatural prophecy. And the sort of anti-supernatural scholars, they posit a, a Deutero-Isaiah or a second editor, and that's all complete and utter baloney. But none of you are asking me about that anyway. It's kind of passe now because this is a little aside, but it matters. This, it's strange that I'm old enough to talk about um, like epoch-making shifts in thinking in my own lifetime. Fifty years ago, the anti-supernatural scholarship against the Bible was a big deal. So to believe in a prophecy like this, that Isaiah named Cyrus 150 years before Cyrus was on the scene, or the other thing was to really believe in miracles, that Jesus really multiplied the fish and the loaves. 50 years ago, in Bible scholarship and even in churches, we had to argue uh, f to defend our supernatural beliefs. And the church was sort of ridiculed 50 years ago as weird and out of step and believing crazy things for believing that Isaiah named Cyrus before Cyrus was even born and, and that miracles happened. That's 50 years ago. It's not the issue today. The church is still out of step with the world because the church is always out of step with the world. But in my lifetime, it seems to me we have shifted from anti-supernaturalism, the church is weird because she believes in miracles, to anti-naturalism. The church is evil and bigoted because she believes that God created men and women and that God ordained marriage between one man and one woman. And where we used to be called weird because we believed that Jesus turned water into wine, now we're called hateful, bigoted, suicide-causing, whatever, whatever labels they put on us because we believe in the natural created order of things. But that's just to say that whether it was 50 years ago or today, or if Jesus would tarry 50 years from now when somebody else is in this pulpit, it's the job of the church to open the Bible and believe it without apology, without edit, and without shaving off the edges that the, that the world doesn't want to hear. We receive it in the foolproof strength that God has revealed it. So we'll look here at Isaiah 44, and Isaiah 45. And in our outline here, I put an outline in the uh, bulletin. God kind of does a few things here. The first thing God does is he accepts responsibility for everything. He says, there's no other God. There's no other power. It all rests with me. The second thing God does is he warns you don't argue with me about that. 
God says, as soon as I say that everything rests with me and I'm sovereign, you're going to say, what about, or why'd you do it this way, or why'd you do it that way? So the second thing God does in the second section of our text is he warns us not to take exception to that or be offended by that or argue with him about that. And then third and finally, and this is what makes us a joyful church, our, our confession of faith is not God is powerful, God is sovereign though that's part of our confession of faith. The third movement in our text is that God says, it's my power and my sovereignty that are fully on display in the universal invitation to salvation. That's what makes us the church, is that we're saved, and that this sovereign, unassailable God has used all of his sovereign strength, not merely for condemnation and damnation, but he has used his sovereign strength for justification and salvation forever. That'll be the third movement in our text. So we'll pick up the text in Isaiah 44, starting in verse 24. A brief prayer as we open God's word. Holy Spirit of God, you inspired this text. Would you illuminate now to our minds? Would you authoritatively silence our arguments so that we might receive your revelation fully and completely? For Jesus' sake, amen. 4424. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all these things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and the cities of Judah, they shall be built. I will raise up their ruins, who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers, who says of Cyrus... He is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him, and to loose the belt of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I'll give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you though you do not know me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Beside me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. 
I hope you can see that this, this literary unit, this first of our three sections here, is framed by God saying, I made all things, I made all things. Look at 4424. I am the Lord who made all things, right there in the middle of the verse. He formed us, he formed us from the womb, and then he says in 44, 24, I am the Lord who made all things. And then look at verse 7 of chapter 45. He does well-being, he does calamity, and then the last phrase in verse 7, I am the Lord who does all these things. God takes responsibility, personal responsibility, for all things. And he gives this prophecy about how he's going to use Cyrus. Notice how we go from one man to one nation to all the people in all the earth. 45 verse 3, he's speaking individually to Cyrus and he's saying, I'm the Lord, 45.3, who calls you by your name. And then he says in verse 4, for the sake of my servant Jacob, for the nation Israel, and then he says in verse 6, that all the people may know that I am the Lord and there is no other. There's this expansion from one person to one nation to all the peoples in all the earth. And God's doing what he's doing so that they may all know, so that all may know what? So that all may know, verse 6, I am the Lord and there is no other I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. God is speaking of his solitary, he's the only one, God is speaking of his solitary supremacy. I like Matthew Henry's comment, here is inculcated this fundamental truth, which if only it were firmly believed would abolish idolatry all the way out of the world with an awful commanding air of majesty and authority, bidding defiance as it were to all pretenders, here the great God proclaims to the world, I am the Lord Jehovah and there is no one else. That's what he says here. And then we get to this strange, strong verse, verse 7. God makes light and God makes darkness. God makes well-being and God creates calamity or disaster. Isaiah 45, verse 7 is an absolute 100-proof text on God's sovereignty. There's some question as to the translation of the word calamity. It is the Hebrew word for evil. It's the, it's the generic Hebrew word ra'ah. It's a broad term that sometimes in the Old Testament, it's used to translate a sour taste, a bitter taste. Sometimes in the Old Testament, it's used to refer to a storm or a sickness or like a collision of a ship with a rock. And sometimes in the Hebrew Old Testament, it's used to translate a moral evil or wickedness. We do not believe, because the Bible doesn't teach, that God uh, causes and creates moral evil or sin. James chapter 1, God is pure light. 
He does not sin, nor does he cause anyone else to sin. It's in James 1, 13 to 16. It's not saying that God causes or creates or is the author of moral evil and sin. Uh, that would be our responsibility, along with our demonic uh, companions in this earthly journey that we're on. Sin and moral evil is the responsibility of demons and of men and women. But this text does, as strongly as it can, state that everything in the universe exists because of the creative will of God, that He causes good things to happen, and He causes what we would call bad things or sorrowful things or hardships to happen. And He does this for His own reasons. Oftentimes, we're in the whirlwind of wondering, why, why is God doing this or why is God doing this? But God Himself, at, at least here in this text, God Himself doesn't, doesn't uh, you know, t take Himself out of this equation. This is one of the strongest statements in all of Scripture about God's unassailable, supreme, solitary sovereignty. One commentator put it like this, God does not just allow darkness and calamity and then blame somebody else for them. God creates the problems of human history. How could it be otherwise with the sovereign God of the universe? Isaiah is not even coming close to saying that God sins. That's our problem. But the strategies of God include within their scope everything that happens. As God pursues his redemptive purpose, his good purpose for the world, evil and sin are not outside of God's control. It's been said that God uses evil and sin without having his hands dirtied by them. Evil is not outside of God's control. We have to answer that question biblically, and we have to answer that question almost experientially in our own lives. I've had bad things happen to me, and I know that you've had bad things happen to you. And I've witnessed atrocious moral evil in my day, as I know you have witnessed atrocious moral evil in your day. How do we answer what's God's relationship to that, both biblically and experientially. Well, it's been well stated that the, if you want to talk about this problem and you want to fix it, go ahead and use as your example the, the, the toughest situation that there is, which would mean what's the most brutal moral evil that ever occurred on this planet? And the most brutal moral evil that ever occurred on this planet was the vicious murder of the only perfect man who never deserved to die, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 53 that, that God the Father caused or that it pleased in His sovereign plan for God to have His Son crushed. It, it, he says in Isaiah 53.10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Maybe you're familiar with the fact that the apostle Peter 
picks that up both in Acts chapter 2 and in Acts chapter 4 when the apostle Peter says that, the, that Jesus was delivered over to his murderers according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. When Peter says that, he was not excusing sinners for their morally culpable action in murdering the Son of God. They, they're responsible for their sin. But he was saying that the worst moral evil that ever happened on this planet was not outside of God's control or outside of God's sovereign plan. And so we come back and back and back and back to this repeated phrase in Isaiah 44 and 45, I am the Lord who does all these things. I am the Lord who does all these things. Now, of course, there's a mystery to how and why God does all that he does. But I just want to put in a word, church. We don't need to rescue God from the problems that he seems to have created for himself. He's God. And he doesn't need us to edit this and say, well, it doesn't really mean that God's actually in control. He doesn't need that kind of help from us. Far be it from me to relieve from God the responsibility of being the transcendent king of the universe. The very things that cause me to furrow my brow and wonder why God does what he does, they are the very things that show me that he's God and I'm not. He's in control. And we do God no favors when we dial down his sovereignty we do God no favors when we dial up the supposed free will of man or of demons in an effort to keep God safe from being God. He's God. And he's in control supremely and sovereignly and absolutely. If that's the first movement of our text, the second movement of our text, which we've already anticipated, is that... Huh, from time to time, we have a problem with God's sovereignty. We're like arguing with him, talking back to him. Like, can I get a recount? Because I'm not sure that the committee vote was what I wanted it to be. That's what we get to in 45 verse 9. Man, I love 45 9. Woe to him who quarrels with his maker. I memorized it in the KJV years ago. That's what it says. Woe unto him who quarrels with his maker. I'm reading the ESV this morning. It says, woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their hosts. I have stirred him up in righteousness. I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Notice that the strongest statement of God's sovereignty, verses 7 
and 8 is followed by the strongest rebuke against those who would mitigate or argue against or qualify or classify as down below God's sovereignty. This is not a text where we have whiplash, like it's saying one thing and then he goes to a completely different thing. He's saying God is absolutely sovereign, and we don't get whiplash because we all know that people like us, when we're told that God is sovereign, we're going to be like, "Uh, excuse me, wait a minute, what about this, what about that? So he counters that immediately. He says that people are like clay vessels. Isaiah loves that image. He uses it here and in the, uh, 29 and further on in 50. Uh, Jeremiah loves that image. He uses it in Jeremiah 18. Paul uses this image in Romans 9 when he encounters the same problem and he answers it the same way. In Romans 9, when Paul's arguing about God's sovereignty, he's not, he, he, he's not letting God off the hook. He's leaving God's sovereignty as supreme and sole and absolute. And he says we have no right to answer back against that because he's God. We have no right to dictate to our maker how he should behave any more than the Plato has the right to say back to the person who's forming it, well, why are you making me into a spaceship? I really wanted to be a ballerina. You don't want anything. You're Plato. And I'm forming you into what I want you to be. Verses 9 and 10 has us saying, uh, hey, God, uh, hey, creator and ruler of the universe, uh, I can see ways that you could be doing a better job with this universe down here. Another commentator uh, says of uh, this potter and clay and father and child analogy, the potter cannot be questioned for the clay cannot speak. The parent should not be questioned because the child does not have the rightful authority so to do. The potter cannot and the parent should not be questioned for within their spheres they possess authority. So it is with the Lord, neither as creator nor as ruler of all of history is he ever available for questioning. He is sovereign, and there the matter must end. He makes it clear, doesn't he, in verses 11 and 12 and 13, that because he's the sovereign creator, we are not in a position to inquire of him what what he's doing with what he's created. The God who created the world can choose to use Cyrus to miraculously deliver his people. And if we think that's a strange turn of providence, God's like, well, wait till you see how I saved the world. It's by my son being mocked. This is a strange turn of God's absolute sovereignty, but it's one that we'd be damned without. This is one of those texts where God says repeatedly, I am God, I created the universe. So I do with the universe what I will. My universe, my rule. And it's been said, hasn't it, that you're entitled to your opinions about the universe, but last time I checked, you don't have your own universe. God does. And though we love the first and second parts of this outline, they are incomplete without the third. This is not a raw sermon about God's sovereignty, bring the hammer down, 
be quiet about it. Because Isaiah doesn't preach that way. We have to get to the third movement of our text, which is that this sovereign God uses his almighty sovereign power to deliver the oppressed and to save the world. I love how Isaiah 45 ends. Verse 14, thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you saying, surely God is in you and there's no other, no God beside him. Truly you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. All of them are put to shame and confounded and makers of idols go into confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded for all eternity. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God. Who formed the earth and made it, he established it. He did not create it empty, he formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come, draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that can't save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord, and there's no other God beside me, a righteous God and a Savior? There is none beside me. And then verse 22, Isaiah 45, verse 22 may be, if you let Isaiah pick one verse to cap all the verses that he wrote, this could be it. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed, all who were incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Our chapter ends with a wonderfully compassionate and liberating invitation to all of the ignorant idolaters in the world that God will forgive them and redeem them and save them and they will find him to be the all-sufficient savior that he is. God is the supreme power over all things. And Isaiah is at great pains to almost plead with us. God is the supreme power over all things. And the power of God is best displayed, not in condemnation or in damnation, but in salvation that goes out to all the ends of the earth. Church, this is great news. We, we don't worship a God who's in the business of dominating us and damning us. We worship a God who saves, the only God who saves. This is such a wonderful invitation. I think this, maybe you heard the echoes of Philippians 2 in uh, verse 23. I think Isaiah 45 is in the, in the background of more New Testament passages than we could possibly fathom. 
the promise of salvation. He says in verse 19 that the promise of salvation should be believed because I am the Lord and I'm making it. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. And then what an invitation in verse 22. The idolatrous world is, is here not put away in judgment, but welcomed to God. And what is the reason for salvation? We can talk about sin. We can talk about alienation. We can talk about condemnation and consequence. But what is the reason for salvation that's given in verse 22? Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. Why? Because God is God. The reason for salvation is the solitary, supreme sovereignty of God. This, I think this is behind how often it says in the New Testament, the reason for our salvation is to the praise of the glory of His grace. Soli Deo Gloria. I love what this says about God. I'm borrowing a line from, or a two-letter phrase rather, from John Piper. This phrase, I was listening to a sermon he gave on a different text in Isaiah. But he said something like, God, God has a volcanic exuberance about the fact that he's God. It's volcanic. We all know what a volcano is. And it's an exuberance. In other words, uh, he's not reluctant that he's God. And he's not quiet that he's God. He's joyful and outgoing that he's God. He has this volcanic exuberance about the fact that he's God. And this is the greatest news of our salvation. If there is one God, and if that one God is the creator of the universe and the source of all the light and love and joy in the universe, then it is our job to praise that God as loudly as we can, as often as we can. And it is our job to proclaim the glorious mercy of that God to everyone, everywhere, with every dime we have and every breath that we take. We miss out on so much when we buy into some sort of modern, postmodern, psychotherapeutic, small sin, small God, big me kind of point of view. The point is, God is great. And the greater God is, the greater our salvation is. The gospel is the gospel of God. The gospel is the gospel of God's glory. God being glorified in saving us. The gospel is the expression of that volcanic exuberance that God has in the fact that he's God. I just hear that in 22. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I'm God and there's no other. By myself I have sworn. Well, what other authority is God going to turn to? From my mouth it has gone out in righteousness. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. I read that not as like a, an insecure, egotistical God saying, I want everybody to get in line because I want to feel secure about who I am. This is that volcanic, merciful exuberance of come to me because in me is your salvation. Only in the Lord. You see that in verse 24? <coughs> My voice was not made to yell so much, but this chapter was made to be yelled about. Of that I am sure. <coughs> Only in the Lord. Only in the Lord. 
Church, I just want you to, I just want you to think, I was going to say all week, I want you to think all century about the fact that God is utterly thrilled to be God. He, he has this volcanic exuberance within his own inner Trinitarian life. And he is utterly thrilled to be God. And so the, the, he, the, the, the mission of the church, the life of the church is the overflow of that if God is utterly thrilled to be God and God has this volcanic exuberance about his mercy and his love and his sovereignty, there's only one question left. Do you, do you, do you? If you don't, everything else is missing. But if you do, then you delight to bow the knee, to swear loyal allegiance to him because he is the Lord, there is no other, and he, and he alone, is the almighty Savior. Let's pray. Lord God, you are happy. Lord God, you are forever and ever blessed. Lord God, you delight in your own love, your own mercy, your own sovereignty. And Lord, we simply ask with all the confidence of those who have been bought by the blood of your Son, that you would bring us in on that delight, that your joy would now be ours, and that your mission would now be ours, and that your glory would be our prize. Lord, give to us to worship you with heart, soul, mind, and strength on our tiptoes with all of our voice to worship you. God, be glorified in the salvation of many that Jesus Christ might have his prize. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.